0: This episode of Inside Fashion is brought to you by NetSuite, which empowers fashion companies to deliver a strong omni-channel customer experience while streamlining back-end operations. Visit www.netsuite.com bof to learn more.
2: I stay louder. How did that feel?
3: It was a big deal in the sense because I was the first black face that they have ever actually had in their in their brand and their campaign so it was a
2: historical moment it was a
3: historical moment yeah
2: you go from being just a model to being a role model
3: yes yeah absolutely
2: how does running a company like lem lem differ from your conventional fashion startup.
3: Our first reason for existing is the social impact. The idea of empowering people, giving jobs to people so that they can empower themselves and become independent, and then it's sustainable, for me was something that clicked. I always knew that no matter what I did, there would be an aspect of me that would give back.
2: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the latest episode of Inside Fashion on the BOF Podcast. This week, I have the pleasure of sitting down with a supermodel. The name Leah Kebede has been known to the fashion industry for many years, but her journey into the fashion world is much less known. This week, I sit down to learn about how she started out in Ethiopia, moved to Paris, and then Chicago, and finally landed in New York, where she has resided up until this day. Leah was one of the first black models to storm the catwalks and it was really interesting to sit down with her to learn her point of view on how the catwalks are changing, embracing more people of color. She was also the first black face of Estee Lauder and has been doing some incredibly important work with the World Health Organization. And to top it all off, has launched her own brand out of Ethiopia called Lem Lem. So join me in welcoming Leah Kebede inside fashion. Leah Cabede, nice to meet you.
3: Nice to see you. <laughs> We're in this
2: like, slightly echoey room, so hopefully the sound is okay. At, uh, New York Fashion Week is happening all around us. That is true. We're uh, at Spring Place, but this conversation actually has nothing to do with Fashion Week, which is kind of nice. <laughs> Gives me a little break. Yeah. And I, I'm really excited to talk to you because, um, you know, I've been reading a bit about your company, Lam Lam, that you've started several years ago now and all the world work you've been doing as a role model, not just as a fashion model. But before we get into those topics, I just wanted to learn a little bit about, you know, how you first landed in this crazy world called fashion. You know, mm-hmm. How long ago was that now that you started in this business?
3: <laughs> um, well, it's been... The real like I, I want to say pre-Ethiopia, you know, um, it's been like 20 years,
2: 20 years. Yeah. And just kind of what's every model has the discovery story. What's yours? <laughs>
3: um, I don't particularly have a discovery story, actually. Okay. Um, but um, I started modeling when I was in Ethiopia in high school.
2: Because um, you wanted to. Yeah,
3: pretty much. Yes, because I wanted to and uh, it was just the coolest thing to do at school, and there was these fashion shows organized by seniors, and we all wanted to be in them. and uh, And I was a very um, I was very skinny uh, growing up, and so somehow we all thought, oh, this is part, of, you know, whatever, whatever. And uh, and so I was kind of excited about it, and. Uh, I started modeling a little bit in in Ethiopia and it was really fun and uh, I really enjoyed doing it uh, there because it's basically fashion at that time in Ethiopia meant there was like these two designers and they did maybe one fashion show per year in the Hilton Hotel Show, fashion show plus dinner.
2: <laughs> for a consumer audience. I
3: for consum- Yes, direct to consumer.
2: Very ahead of the times.
3: Very ahead of the times. Uh, yeah, it's basically what Tom Ford did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when he first came back, he did yeah. that dinner. And, and of course. Show- that's basically what we did. which was kind of funny for me to actually do that Tom Ford show, and it reminded me of those days. Um, except we did our own hair and makeup and we bought our own shoes and all this kind of stuff and it was the same girls and it was really, I think for me, a growing up moment. I was, I was quite young then, I was like 16, but the models were different ages. I was the youngest I think, but then there was like, you know, 20-something, 30-something and we're all modeling together. So it was really women bonding around some, you know, glamorous thing that really bonded us together. It was really, I have really nice memories of that. And so in my mind, I kind of thought, oh, this is what fashion is, and obviously realized quickly that it wasn't, <laughs> and that it was actually a proper business and a real, it's a real thing, you know. And um, I, went to, I wanted to go to Paris to try it, because I was finishing high school. Um, I, was, I went to the French lycee in Ethiopia in Addis, so first by, by chance, my mom wanted me to do that. Um, and so when I was done with high school, you know, at the time in Ethiopia, uh, all young people wanted to come to America because the promised land. The promised land. Yeah. So it's funny to be
2: here, here now. To, now, now,
3: yeah, and having those questions. But um, yeah, America was the land of opportunity for everybody, you know. And so, and and I knew that if I, you know, if I had stayed in Ethiopia, my I wouldn't have a lot of opportunity to even go to, I mean, the universities, what they were offering, what kind of things you could do. Um, was 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 not was not great, and so I really wanted to go, but my parents couldn 't really afford to send me um, to college you know and pay tuition and all those kind of things so I wanted to sort of try in my mind I always thought okay i 'll just try model maybe I can make a little money and then eventually pay for school and that 's sort of how
2: it started it started and yeah. it started in paris
3: it started in paris uh, I went to Paris and had my first exposure to real fashion which was very harsh and violent um what
2: year was that do you remember this
3: was 99 okay or 98 to my best so
2: tom ford was big then
3: yes but i was i had no clue i mean no no i i was just really like landing (laughs) like just off the boat you know so no, and i I found an agency not easily, it was not easy and, uh, and I was going around castings, which I didn't even know what the, so I was it was my first time doing all of it, and going to castings where you I, I remember I used to go to castings and there, there would be girls three times around the block, all tall, all beautiful, all like and and you're, and you're like this is this is not going to work. this is crazy. It makes no sense, you know. And, and we had many, thousands of castings, you just go and you, and you hear no, no. It's very hard, you know, and, and, uh, and I thought this is crazy. I don't know if this, I'm gonna be able to do this. And so Paris was not great, and it was kind of a flop. Um, and then I, went, I came to America um, to still try and like um, get some kind of footing. So I went to Chicago and got to Elite Models and-
2: In Chicago? Yeah. Why Chicago?
3: Because my brother was living in Chicago at okay. the time. And so it was just like, okay, at least if somebody was there. Yeah. So I could stay with him and be with him and everything. And, uh, and I tried modeling. And it was, I had spent, I, I lived two and a half years in Chicago. It was really rough. The weather was awful. Mm-hmm. And, and it was tough because I was doing like random catalogs here and there. And I would have to take the, Greyhound bus to Wisconsin to do an ad for Kohl's or something and you're like in the middle of, I mean, I'm like from Ethiopia, it's like this is, <laughs> it was a little out there and it was hard, you know, at the time as well, I mean, it wasn't easy to just, you know, to be a black model either, so. What was it, like, we should talk about that a bit,
2: I mean, in Wisconsin, you know, black model catalog work.
3: Yeah, I mean, catalogs had like, you know, the token, I don't know, they always had, I guess. One black girl, you know. I think they, the sort of did that back then from time to time. So I don't know. Was, were there
2: were there other were there, there black models that you looked up to that were successful? Like I guess Naomi Campbell.
3: Yes, but that was when I was in Ethiopia. I used okay. to be like oh, I had a, I had a poster of Naomi in my bedroom.
2: Really? Yeah. Okay, so she was the
3: she yeah. Benchmark. I had yeah. I think it was a Gap ad or something. There was right. a like cool black and white picture of her that I had, and I was like, oh, you know. Um, but I mean, but I didn't know what that really meant, to be honest with you, now that I think about it. It was just like this, it's like looking at a star and be like, oh, you know. Um, so I knew her, I knew about Iman, I guess, but um,
2: that, was, that was pretty much it.
3: Um,
2: so when did, when did you get your big break? How did that happen?
3: I came to New York, and, uh, and uh, I got into a tiny agency, Um, Actually, I went to 12 agencies, and they all rejected me. And then the last one, which was a tiny little agency, this French lady actually took me in and said, okay, fine, we're going to do this. And I thought, oh, God, this nightmare. I wish she said no so I could actually change my entire life and forget fashion. And so I was in that little agency, and I did one fashion week where I did a show for somehow I ended up doing a Ralph Lauren show, I think which was kind of crazy. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And James Scully.
2: Our friend James.
3: Our friend James, yeah. at the time, saw me on that show, I don't know how, and put, called me in, he was a Bazaar back then, and said, I want to meet this girl, blah, blah, blah. And I, I went to meet him and he's like, oh my God, you're going to be amazing. You have to meet Tom Ford, you have to go to Milan. And I'm like, uh, no, 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 this is not going to work. And I'm like, are you confirming for the show? He's like, no, 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 you're just going to go. You're going to meet him. And if he likes you, you stay. If he doesn't like you, come back. I'm like, yeah, no, that sounds awful.
2: Did you know who Tom Ford was?
3: Yes, by then I knew who Tom Ford okay. was. But it's like I was like, I don't think I'm ready to like, go all the way to Milan. And blah, blah. I'm like, you have to go, you have to go, you have to go. And he was really, he was amazing, actually. Um, and I went to Milan, not knowing if I was going to stay or come back after meeting Tom. You know, it's kind of a funny situation. And um, and I and I met Tom with Corinne, Um and it was actually it was one of the most amazing, I think, meetings in a way, like just
2: to meet. So what was that? Like? God, <laughs> tell me what that meeting was like.
3: I can't even like it was incredible. He was unbelievable. I don't know how to explain. He was just like so. He was such a genius, you know? Yeah. And you saw it, and he breathed it, and he lived it, and, and he was really handsome, too, and so chic, and, and really, like, involved with the clothes, and he come in and fits you himself, and, and very, you know, very curious about... You know, it was... He was... He's, it was like you go into the room, and it's, like, it's quiet. It's, there was, like, a... There was a thing, you know? There was a real... Did
2: he ever real energy. tell you why he picked you? Like, why... You you passed, you know, what was it about you that he, especially if there were so so few black models at the time. Yeah, there were, yeah. What was it about you? Did he tell you?
3: I think he said something like, uh... I think I don't know. I think it's something like there was some a, a sort of expensive look to me, or
2: something to that. <laughs> that something sounds like to that. a Tom Ford thing, <laughs> yes. though, right? You look expensive.
3: Something like that, I think it was, because because you, I was walking, you know, I had to try some things on and walk from when I went. and he was like, yeah, okay, I like her, and I stayed, and it was. It was and then fabulous. everything changed. And then, uh, not so easily, but that was the beginning right. of. What yeah. was
2: the first show like that Thanks. you walked in? It was. Gucci.
3: It was it was Gucci, yeah. And it was amazing. What did
2: you wear? It was
3: amazing. You know it was that season where they had the, the scarves with the big glasses and the and I mean it was really the biggest show I obviously had ever done, the most glamorous and at the yeah. time really Tom was was the leader. He was at know? the
2: height of everything. Was, he yeah. was at
3: the height of everything, whatever yeah. he said what went, you know, and so it was kind of incredible to be around him, to work uh, with to see the people around working and the amount of you know uh, dedication they took to everything they made was really really inspiring and incredible yeah. um and you know he was he was telling us what sex he was too you know right. but he did it in such an you know incredible way um
2: yeah amazing so fast forward you know your career obviously takes <clears> off at one point you know you're you're on the models.com you're like number 1 on that list you're doing all these shows then you become the face of Estee Lauder which is obviously in, in the modeling industry when you're the face of a beauty brand that's like that when the when it really starts to pay right how did that feel Estee Lauder
3: Estee Lauder was 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 quite a big deal um, at the time when it happened um, First of all, for a model to get a beauty contract is is a really big deal. Um, it's sort of like it gives you some sort of stability, you know. That's that's wonderful. And then at the same time, it was a big deal in the sense because I was the first black face that they've ever actually had in their in their campa- in their brand, in their campaign. And um, so it was a
2: historical moment. It was too. a historical
3: moment. Yeah, it was a really historical moment. And it
2: came with responsibility mm-hmm. and. You go from being just a model to being a role model.
3: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: What was that like?
3: I think it's 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 you know it's 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 a strange feeling because you realize that even to, at that point today you're still doing the fir- you're still doing something for the first time and you're the first one to do something still and that's kind of a little disturbing you know um, and and then you obviously feel you know the responsibility of representing you know everyone <laughs> um, and it's 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 a bag of mixed goods
2: did, did did they ever say why they'd never picked a black model before
3: no they did not i think that um, i don't I, I don't know no i think i don't know if they made products for black skin even.
2: Right. i'm not sure right and all of that's changed now, all of that you know, especially right now. If you look at what's happening in the landscape of models and the rising models, you know, the, the names that are appearing everywhere, Adut Akech and Anokiai and you know, lots of other yeah. amazing, beautiful black women, it kind of must be interesting for you to watch this happening, go from being one of a very few faces to you know uh, even if you look at the magazine covers now like there's a there's a wider conversation happening around inclusivity and fashion is a big part of that
3: it's funny because yesterday actually i was at the toy bird show and a a german journalist came over to me and said oh can i do a quick interview and i'm like yeah sure and he goes so i just want to ask you a question how do you feel about all this black girls on the cover suddenly and i was like uh i didn't know we were We had to answer that question (laughs) that's you know like really we have to actually answer that question now why there's black girls on the cover i don't like it's so crazy i think
2: maybe he was (laughs) i think what some people are saying and i I think it's an interesting question this is like is it are people perceiving it or treating it like some kind of trend, trend or is this a reflection of a more systemic shift
3: right I mean again you know going back to our conversation I like to think of it as it's a systemic shift because it's not just in fashion it's really everywhere it's there's a movement going on there's a lot of things happening and it's 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 turning around and I think it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful balance that we're that well we're not balanced yet but still you know that that, that's happening and in terms of you know I was saying in terms of um, also the models the there's a sense of acceptance and inclusivity uh, of the individual person as they are, as opposed to, uh, you have to look a certain way to fit. Even if you're, don't look, if you're black and you're in a, and doing a show and you're the only black person doing a fashion show, you, you still have to fit into looking like everyone, you know, it's kind of a strain. That was sort of what well, we was
2: did. One of the the reasons that some fashion designers and casting directors would use, which just like it doesn't fit the vision. Remember? Was it, that's kind of a very euphemistic way of saying, well, you know, black people or black skin doesn't, f- or black hair or whatever it might be, isn't part of the vision.
3: Right. Is, and we heard, I mean, uh, yes, and we, uh, I heard a lot also, black girls on covers don't sell. Right. That was a big
2: one. Well, clearly that's not the case anymore. I guess
3: not. <laughs> Since both, I don't know, Vogue and all of them had, yeah, yeah I know, it's hilarious. I mean. Well, yeah.
2: it's, I, you know, I think it's a really positive shift. So if you, were, if you were talking to some of these young women who are storming the runways now and kind of at the early stage of their career, like, what does it take to be a successful model? I know it's changed a lot. Yes,
3: it's changed a lot. It's hard to, right now I wouldn't know how to answer that question, because I think that the, the requirements have changed, you know. Um, I think that, uh, for me, what I saw in my time is, is really, you have to work really hard, you have to learn a lot, you have to, I was saying, you know, modeling, it's as a model, you learn on the job, you hopefully have amazing people who you work with that train you. Um,
2: so who trained you?
3: Uh, I got a lot of training from Steven Meisel, and I'm not the only one. I think a lot of girls who really shot with him all feel the same way. He was, incredible. He was an incredible teacher um, in front of the camera, you know, what to do, how your body is, what your body should be saying, doing, but to the, you know, he's the kind of person who would come and arrange your finger, you know, in a shot, and then you'll understand why it makes sense that your finger does that as opposed to something else you know and so you learn a lot and um that's helped that's helped a lot uh as opposed to you know being in front of it being on set and someone just saying okay go and no direction no you know it's very hard because as in a way the we the models are the outsiders on every shoot you know we're the ones see
2: what's happening
3: we can't see what's happening and we're the ones who change you know most of them work in teams so it's the same people and you're the one who's the girl is always the one that changes so you're Kind of always the outsider, so it's an uncomfortable space, you know. Um, and so it's it's all those things you have to learn, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I'm
3: sure. So. And there's a lot of luck. Yeah. I have to say, um, you don't know why why her and what not why her, you know. It's just I, I it's hard. That's a that's a difficult one to
0: to answer.
4: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits.
2: Stratospheric Success and multiple covers of Vogue and Estee Lauder contract and... L'Oreal now. Previously <laughs> Estee Lauder, now L'Oreal, yes. right? Yeah. Big beauty contract. You started doing other things that had basically nothing to do with modeling. And it's something that I think many people with um, a platform are now doing, which is, you know, taking up causes or becoming activists or whatever it might be. but. Back, back when you started taking on some of these causes, for example, the World Health Organization, you know that, that was kind of unusual. What, what drew you to these kinds of endeavors in the first place? So You were a mom and you had, the, you had a busy career, so why did you feel compelled to take the time to do other things?
3: I think it's sort of... A lot of it has to do with you know me growing up in ethiopia and really growing up you know seeing poverty all around and understanding you know the difference life that people live and 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 the different access and opportunities that people get depending on where you're born um and at the at the same time also it's an ethiopian i mean it's a cultural thing too helping is really part of the culture. I saw my mom, you know, taking people in all the time and f- feeding people and all these kind of things. There's there's this sense of giving as part of a gratefulness, you know, to all the things that you are lucky enough to have. That I think um, I always knew that at some, you know, even growing up in Ethiopia, that no matter what I did, there would be an aspect of me that would give back, you know. And I didn't really know, though, in which way, in which capacity, what platform, which cause, and all those things. And when, at the time, I had, had my son already, and uh, I had my son in, in, in New York. I was pregnant and delivered in New York City Hospital, and I had the most incredible care, you know, and all my checkups and all the sonograms, and I, and I, you know, I was given a little note with, you know what the gender was, and I, I decided not to open it until the last day, and all these amazing things. I felt really safe, and um, my doctor was incredible. I saw her all the time. I mean, it was—it's an incredible process. I mean, giving birth is an incredible uh, moment in a woman's life, and when the WHO came and, and wanted me to be involved uh, in trying to raise awareness around the death of mothers during pregnancy and childbirth. Moments uh, in most diff- uh, developing countries like Ethiopia, which growing up I uh, for me It was a real it was a real thing women dying in childbirth was very common and i We all sort of every time you heard. Oh, so gonna deliver everybody was like mm, Okay,
2: people were worried
3: always and it was common to me that and but I I think we I wasn't educated enough and not most of us to know why those women were dying we thought it was just oh my god it's one this of is, the kills risks, you yeah yes it's one of the risks but then i realized when i came here and, and i worked with the who I, I learned that actually women were dying because they had no access to basic health care basic not basic medical care basic you know, not a doctor, not a clinic, not a place to deliver uh, your your child. If you if you hemorrhage, if your baby's too big, you can't do a surgery. If you have an infection, it's all you know. All these things that are completely treatable or preventable anywhere that's in the Western world, if you want to call it in a in a, in a place like Africa, in the poorest nations, those things kill you. And, and so,
2: also a basic education around. Reproductive Around, health and maternal health yes, and all of these things. Yes. yes. So what, give us an example of like the kind of basic knowledge that women in these countries don't have about health care.
3: I mean, I don't think that they know that there's dangers when you're pregnant, that there's dangers from day one, right? There's a risk always. And the best way to prevent that risk is by being ahead of it. And you, the way you are ahead of it is by going to... In those cases, maybe a healthcare attendant or a skilled care attendant or a health worker, and staying on top, and her staying on top of you, checking your pregnancy, seeing if everything's okay. Are you at risk? Would you be, you know, one who might have an infection, or is your baby going to be too big if your body's too narrow, or are you going to have blood pressure? All those things can be prevented if you know ahead in advance. Most women in, in those in third world countries, they go to the doctor, if there is a doctor to go to, if there is a hospital they can reach when they're delivering their child in a hut, probably, with no water, no, so no electricity, no nothing. So
2: maternal starts with the delivery. It does, there is no There is months, no, so, There is no, no. yes, oh, exactly.
3: Wow. There is none of that prenatal, that whole nine months is, there's nothing. They just, it arrives, it's at delivery, and even at delivery, it's not really at delivery, it's when your delivery goes wrong. Right. That's when you go, oh my God what do we do? Let's go to the hospital. By then, it's too late. So most of them end up either dying on the way or dying when they get there or their child dies when it gets too late. Wow. So even the, even the, 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 the idea for them about going to a hospital has a negative connotation because they always go too late. And so the result is always negative. Right. right? So that education has to change. And and, and women have to un, you know, be educated to
2: know they have to so go what, and... So what's cartagen- the work that you're doing in that space exactly now?
3: So we um, worked a lot with the idea of helping train midwives, more midwives, more skilled attendants, giving access so women have more access to, to the right people at the right time so that they can get educated, they can do their prenatal checkups, and when they are ready for delivery, they have skilled midwives as opposed to, for example, you know, the neighborhood midwife who has delivered children but has never really been educated. And I don't want to bring that down, but the risks are really high, you know, and and, and, and so we're trying to change that and, and help have more and more midwives out there in the world. We work with a, a really amazing organization called Amref, um, and they've like set the school. They want to they want to train thousands and thousands of midwives and just sort of put them out into the world. And um, they say that one midwife can help 500 women a year. That's a lot, you know. So just by helping one midwife be trained, you're helping hundreds of women, you know, and their deliveries and on their babies and generations and stuff like that. So the idea of investing in women um, in that way um, is really... Uh, is a, is, a, is a good investment. <laughs>
2: yeah. It's amazing. And on one of the trips to Ethiopia, you discovered another opportunity to give back to your home country. Mm. And this led to the creation of this business, Lem Lem, mm-hmm. which I think means bloom. Mm-hmm.
3: To bloom, yes. That's correct, An Ethiopian. Amharic. In Amharic. Yeah. <laughs>
2: and and, and when, we, when I lived with my uh, Ethiopian. Roommate in Boston, he always kept bere in the fridge.
3: And
2: he oh, berbere! <laughs> so I try to understand the, the
3: the red the red pepper the red the red powder
2: powder, and he put it on everything. Yeah, so he taught me about Amhar. He knows but, his food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but back to the topic at hand, you went you went home and you decided to get involved with artisans as well.
3: Yes. Yes, I think you know. Again, it's this that sort of came about because. Working in 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 fundraising and philanthropy, and um, mm-hmm. you quickly realize how difficult it is to sustain philanthropy. To sustain a, how do you make aid sustainable? You know, it's a very difficult thing. Yeah. Um, and so, the idea of actually empowering people, giving jobs to people, so that they can empower themselves and become independent, and then it's sustainable. For me, was something that clicked you know when I saw that and I thought this is the way this is a really good way to give back that's sustainable that can carry on forever and you'll make a really big because it's impact.
2: capacity building it's skill building it's
3: skill building it's capacity building it's employment yeah. it's earning money themselves yeah. uh, it's a profitable you know m- business model that is has all the social impacts that you want you know
2: So how does your so you know lots of I meet with lots of people who launch fashion companies and fashion businesses as part of my regular gig. But how does running a company like Lem Lem do you think differ from your conventional fashion startup?
3: I mean, because it's a social impact business. The the first the our first reason for existing is the social impact, and then it's about also really preserving the art of artisans and the, the work that they do. And and because what was happening was all these incredibly gifted artisans did not have uh, jobs. They were just living in poverty. And the art of, of, of weaving was dying, which we, as a nation, um, had always been clothed by these people. And then suddenly, you know, westernization and all these kind of different things come up and people are just wearing T-shirts and jeans and, and not wearing the clothes anymore. So all these people were... In, in, in poverty, looking for jobs and not really having a, a place for, for what they were doing. So the idea of transforming that, giving them a platform where they can exercise their beautiful hand, you know, craft and their beautiful talent, and at the same time, we're making an impact on their lives. You know, Their wages have increased five times since we started. We've imp- we're we employing now 250 craftsmen, which is incredible and it's wow. amazing. And, and when you meet them and when you go and you see the impact that you're having, not because you made a garment, but all around it. And it's not just because also even the way we make the garment for them, you know, we're kind of, it's a it's a, it's a marriage because we take what they do, we give them an, some sort of an influence and direction, a way of looking at things differently than they did before. So then the whole thing comes together and they're so proud and they're so happy and they love that they've evolved also in the way they look at, you know, how they look at clothes and how they look at products and thinking that, oh my God, there's a woman in New York City walking around wearing what I made by by hand because they're sitting there weaving it by hand. You know, wow. so it's kind of incredible.
2: So how did you launch the like what I mean, what did you launch with? And what was your first? It was kids. Okay.
3: I started with kids because I thought it would be really lovely for mothers to buy handmade, beautifully made Clothes for their children, and um, and they're weaving cotton or what yes. They- so it's 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 co- it's cotton that you weave by by hand and on a loom.
2: Okay.
3: Um, and at first we only had white cotton because we used whatever was available, only you know, locally. Um, and then now we're evolved, so we get color cotton. We import cotton, and they're weaving it. And we try wool, and they're weaving. We try cashmere. And it's kind of amazing. So we've.
2: You're building a whole new... We're,
3: yeah, we're like, building, yeah, we're building. And it's been, it's been an incredible, incredible ride.
2: So tell me about the scale of the operation today. You said you have 250 artisans, but like where do you sell the product? You know.
3: We, so, I mean, we, we sort of design everything here and everything is made there. Um, and then uh, we sell everywhere. We sell pretty much online, obviously. But then we're at net we're at Barney's, we're in shop we're in Europe as well, and um, in Paris and London. Um, we, we sell in all the, in all the, in all the good stores. <laughs> and
2: where, where do you see it going from here, this business? Like, what's your master plan?
3: I want this to be a, a global lifestyle, sustainable, luxury brand made in Africa you know I feel we're I feel like I want us to be the imba- you know sort of like really celebrating the work and the artisanry of African um, talents uh, all across the continent and bringing that forward and having that be celebrated and uh, and, and do something you know I feel like we're doing something new and uh, um, I want us to really grow and, and really become an example for uh, this luxurious African brand.
2: It's a real contradiction in terms in terms of the way many people think about Africa, mm-hmm. right? Luxury and mm-hmm. Africa aren't often words that people would put together. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are now talking about Africa as a manufacturing destination, yes. not just in fashion, yes. but Across the continent, um, as labor becomes more and more expensive in mm-hmm. Asia, as people think about proximity to Europe, there's a lot, a lot of opportunity to create things—not just fashion, but also fashion in Africa. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that as a something? Something I'm mixed we'll about
3: s- it. If that's Pardon? It's a mixed feeling about it. Okay, yes. so tell me why. I—I I mean, because. On one hand, of course, I want that to happen because I think it will be a way of really creating industries and really employing a lot of people and hopefully changing the lives of many, many, many people. At the same time, it's hard because we haven't really seen places where that has happened, where the people really flourished. So it's a because you don't just want... I don't just want Africa to be seen as a place where you're just manufacturing low-cost things. That's not my goal for for the you know I w- I, for the continent. <laughs> I want it to be a place where you can actually manufacture incredibly, incredibly high-end fashion things. You know, not just low-cost. So that's maybe both will exist. Ideally, that's what I w- you know I want is more and more of people like me come in also and really uh, help. The continent flourish, and not just be a low-cost manufacturing place.
2: Yeah, I I recently met with a an activist who um, she's on the cover of our new print issues, which are coming out. And um, her name is Kalpona Akter, and she's a she was a a garment worker in Bangladesh starting at the age of twelve. And so she and I spent a lot of time talking about kind of this mixed feelings that you have, because on the one hand it creates so much economic opportunity. And for people who haven't spent time in some of these developing countries and really understand the level of yeah. poverty around, like having a job yes. is a big deal.
1: Yes. But I think
2: awesome. what what's really missing now in the way that Western companies work in these low-cost countries is really thinking about the people who make the clothes and. The, the wages and the conditions and the treatment that they get, right? So I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing to create low-cost things in Africa, but it must be done in a way that's respectful of the people. And I think that's the mistake that's been, that's happened you know, in Cambodia and in mm-hmm. Vietnam and in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess that's a risk in Africa as well. It's
3: a it? risk, yeah, it's a risk. And that's, I hope we don't fall into that, uh, but I totally agree with you. I understand the meaning of getting a job. For yeah. people, and um,
1: yeah.
3: but there's that risk, and it would be nice if we avoid the same things that has happened somewhere. We learn from it and make a better situation, as opposed to just going for the low cost, you know. Uh, and encourage other people who want to actually promote also high end things and the artisans' work and you know kind of things, so that they can both both flourish. Yeah.
2: So if someone's listening to this conversation and they want to. And we have listeners all over the world. Some are in the fashion industry, others aren't. But if they want to get involved or understand better the African opportunity for be- manufacturing beautiful, luxurious things, mm-hmm. what, what should they do? Where should they start?
3: Here with me.
2: <laughs> should I give out your email address yeah. to hundreds of thousands of people? Uh, yeah.
3: No, I mean, I think, you know, I think... Um, I mean, I mean the informa- I, mean, I mean, the information is out there, so it's not really that difficult. But um, we, you know, we work um, a lot in Ethiopia with, with the artisans and, the, and and our weavers. Um, but we've really expanded also our work to include other different countries. Like I told you, we work in Kenya. Uh, we we do like a lot of cut and sew in Kenya. Um, we explore working with people in Rwanda and people in Tanzania. You know, we, we work in different in, in different places. Africa is huge and, and really big, and and uh, um, so I'm trying to understand the, what each country can give. is quite you know is quite a, a process, um, but I think that at the same time there's so much talk around Africa being the new uh, place where there's a lot of return for your investment. It's it's been like everywhere, and everybody's talking about Ethiopia being one big one of them also. Um, there's so many industries that are just
2: Ethiopia, you know, Kenya, yeah. Nigeria, Ghana, Ghana. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, so there's, I think there's a lot of interest anyway uh, towards Africa. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a it's kind of a good moment, and you know, and they're and they're also moving. They're moving, and they're also doing lots of different things. There's like fashion weeks everywhere now over there as well, and designers are coming out of you know from different places as well, and so. It would be nice if there was like a a sort of a CFDA type of thing that can put all those things together and help and support and really create a real industry there, which I think, I don't see why we wouldn't. It's starting
2: to form, I think, you know, I think like what I see, and you know, when I'm interacting with people from the fashion industry in Africa, you really get a sense of momentum now.
3: Mm, There is a momentum. Yes. And uh,
2: it'll be really interesting to watch. Both on the manufacturing side and also on the consumption side, how the dynamics mm-hmm. begin to shift as more people um, enter the workforce and become educated and get jobs and you know, participate in the global economy, mm-hmm. but also participate in the fashion economy. Um, well, thank you very much, Leah. That was that was really interesting—a a tour of your career, but also a, uh, a tour of the, uh, the African opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if anyone wants to learn more about LEMLEM, Lem, um, go on our website. Go on the website. (laughs) Is it LEMLEM.com? That is, yes. Have a look. Um, Beautiful handmade clothes made in Ethiopia and Kenya and other places. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, my family is also from East Africa, so I understand exactly what, yeah, that craftsmanship there is really amazing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just needs a bit of design Mm -hmm. and guidance and Mm -hmm. they can create incredible things. So uh, check out lemlem.com. And thank you, Leah, for chatting with me. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Uh, Tune in for another episode of Inside Fashion soon. We'll take you on a tour somewhere else. Very special, very soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. If you're interested in the business of fashion, you may also want to know about our daily digest newsletter. Each morning, hundreds of thousands of people around the world wake up to this newsletter, which is your free essential daily briefing on everything going on in the fashion world everywhere. So if you'd like to sign up for this newsletter, please visit businessoffashion.com newsletter.
0: Go to shopify.com slash B-O-F to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash B-O-F.
4: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.